Okay, now I want you to go to Isaiah 61, all right? And, but I'm going to ask us to back up to 60 even as we start. We're finishing this uh, little discussion of uh, the sovereignty of the Father. We're going to bridge now uh, next week into the book of Hebrews, if you want to read Hebrews 1 uh, and talk about the sovereignty of the Son. But uh, we're kind of, this is a, this is kind of a, uh, a bridging week. Anybody brand new we ought to say hello to? Everybody's supposed to be here? Okay. If you see somebody around you that you don't know, uh, introduce yourself, okay? Because we don't want to miss them. Now, this is the last uh, week we'll deal with uh, this issue of the sovereignty of the Father, um, and every one of these lessons, if you've noticed, has included a messianic uh, portion to it. Isaiah 61, that we'll be in today, appears in the what many scholars would call the closing section of the book of Isaiah, a section typically dedicated as uh, being uh, chapters uh, 60 through 66. Um, it has been called, that section of Isaiah has been called the grand finality of God's, uh, the grand finale, I'm sorry, of God's restoration plan. Um, anyway, its intent was to give great hope to the people of uh, Isaiah's day, and uh, it really could be compared favorably in many ways to the closing chapters of uh, the book of Revelation. We're going to do a brief little comparison of that. Um, it's interesting with those suffering people uh, during the time of the book of Revelation and the suffering people in the time of Isaiah you can you can bet there's a lot of uh, of similarities and lots of um, uh, of parallels there. By the way, I just got to say, Jerry Regeer, welcome home, man. It's good to see you. Sorry you weren't able to bring Sharon with you on this trip, but we're just always happy to see you. Things in Virginia, okay? Okay, all right. You're welcome anytime you can come back home. Okay. All right. Uh, by the way, David, you're you're doing okay. He was lighting a cigarette and burning his shirt. No, it was something different than that, wasn't it? Huh? That's bad. He was doing something much more industrious. And uh, we're so sorry, but glad you're okay. And uh, Leah, has he been a good patient? I didn't figure so. I didn't figure so. We'll continue to pray for you. All right. Go with me to 60. Okay, Isaiah 60, and I want somebody to read verse 3, verse 5, and verse 11. Uh, Steve Blair, would you do that? Verse 60, just one page back. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. Listen to it as Steve reads. Okay, that get through 11. All right. Now listen to this. You heard what Steve just read. I'm going to go to the next to the last chapter of the Bible. Here is, listen to what is said in Revelation 21. Okay, I'm going to start with verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will never be night there, its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. 
and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You, you catch the parallel? It's just wonderful. And there's five or six of those where Isaiah and Revelation really parallel, bringing comfort, again, to people who are in, in difficult times. Well, so that's what we're going to be about today. Traditionally, the book of Isaiah is seen to feature four what is called sometimes sermon songs. Isaiah 42, uh, 1 through 4, Isaiah 49, 1 through 6, Isaiah 54 through 9, Isaiah 52 through 53. Scholars don't agree on the passage boundaries, and some see this passage as even a fifth servant song. So we're going to start right here in verse 1, and somebody read, if you will, the beginning of this almost hymnic portion of Scripture, verse 1 through 4. Anybody read that for us? Isaiah 61. Thank you, Steve. You know, if I didn't believe the Bible, I think I'd still read it as literature. This is beautiful. You notice the language is just dripping with beauty and sentiment. Now, it, it begins with the, at least uh, my, my particular um, um, passage here, my particular translation, is going to talk about I and me. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Uh, who is me here? Well, let's kind of deal with that a little bit. I'm going to tell you that I believe without the New Testament as a witness, we might still be wondering who me is in verse 1 and, and for this section. But Jesus himself is going to give us the answer to who the me is. Go with me, if you will. Keep your finger there. Go to Luke 4. Go to Luke 4. The context of Luke 4 is that Jesus has taken the disciples, and they've gone back to Nazareth. Now, this has parallels in my life, because I went back to Paul's Valley last week, okay? So, this is Jesus going back to Nazareth, all right? And he's asked to speak at his home congregation, his home synagogue. And it's interesting to me that this was a holy setup, because they handed him... Would you, Rabbi, would you mind to speak? Of course I will. Would you read the scriptures today? Sure. And they hand him the book of Isaiah. This is a holy setup. And so he turns there to the section that you and I, of course there weren't numbers in those scrolls, but you and I would recognize this as being Isaiah 61. Look, go with me. You're in Luke 4. We're going to begin at verse 16. Here's what Jesus does. This is beautiful. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. Now, you realize how pregnant this moment is? And... Um, the book 
of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Recognize this? Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's interesting. You catch how just dramatic this moment is? He reads it, hands it back, sits down, and everybody's watching him. He says, oh, by the way, by the way, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He identifies himself as the me in Isaiah 61. I just love it. I love the drama of the gospel. And I uh, hope you kind of get into that at some point in your life. Now, um, so uh, he says here, I was anointed to do these things. And he lists several things there. Now, uh, I've been reading in my quiet time uh, through um, the first books of the Bible. And I've been kind of in Leviticus the last several several weeks. And and uh, kind of glad I'm out of Leviticus, but okay. Um, I'm in Numbers now, which is a little better. But uh, Leviticus 25 talks about the day of Jubilee. We've talked about that in class before. Uh, when, when property reverts back to its proper owner. So uh, every so many years, uh, in fact, they even prorate all this. If you buy a piece of property or a slave, uh, there's only a section of time uh, that it's going to belong to the person to whom it's sold. Then it reverts it's kind of like they rewind the clock and it reverts back to its proper owner. Um, several years back, um, Ron and I have a little friend who um, uh, was working with David Jeremiah for a while. He's now at Willow Creek as a worship leader. And uh, uh, this was a guy that we used to sing with in Kentucky. And um, uh, he was, when we met him, he was, in, he was a student at the University of Kentucky and probably the most talented kid I've ever met musically. And um, he called us a couple weeks ahead uh, one time when the Gaither Vocal Band was going to be at, um, uh, they were doing one of the big, uh, big things, you know, with all the people in the Gaither Vocal Band was going to be at, at, down at the Chesapeake. And they said, can you guys come? I said, sure. So he gave us some tickets and, like I said, lunch with him earlier that day. And, and we went to the concert and uh, thinking they, you know, it'd be the, some kind of a, uh, um, um, a a cheap seat, and you know, we'd be where we have to use binoculars. And yet, but they sat us on the front row. It's kind of interesting. He was Marsh was singing with the Gaither vocal band at the time, and um, he um, so they they did a little break. Now I'm I'm actually I'm I'm being really braggadocious here. Okay, can can you pick up on that? Okay, so I'm sitting on the front row at the big Gaither reunion thing. And, um, and the guys have just sung, and they're, they're taking a break. It's kind of an intermission. Everybody's going off stage. And as they walk by me, Marsh says, come on. And so we took off and went back to the kind of the green room, which uh, was interesting. And by the way, your pastor was there. He was back there hanging out with Bill Gaither. So you can kind of catch that. But um, we're back there kind of meeting the guys. Well, you remember uh, Guy Penrod, if any of you are fans, remember him? What did he always wear, Janet? He always wore a duster. He had a floor-length thing and cowboy boots on. And this long hair, love guy, Penrod. And I got to meet him. Marsh, they were kind of hanging out together. And he introduced me to 
to Guy, and I, and I said, man, every time I see you, I want to quote from the movie Tombstone. <laughs> the Gaither vocal band's coming, and heaven's coming with it. Yeah, okay. Uh, if you remember that line, it didn't go quite that way in Tombstone. You know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is putting hell on notice. <laughs> I love it. Jesus is putting hell on notice. He's saying, I'm here and I'm taking my people back. Those that hell has kept in captivity for far too long, I'm taken back. That's the announcement that he makes as he quotes or reads from Isaiah 61. He's putting hell on notice. I've come to take the prisoner back. This is the day of Jubilee, he says. Now, so if we acknowledge then that Jesus is the one teaching here or being referred to in Isaiah 61, and we get that when he reads it in Luke 4, um, so what he came to do then is this passage here foreshadows what he's going to do years later through his death. He's going he's to provide, he's going to exact freedom for those who've been held captive. Now, if as we read, okay, as Steve read uh, Isaiah 61 and then I came back and read Luke uh, four, the passages that are a direct quote, you'll notice here something interesting. At least, at least I find it really, really interesting. Um, there is a part of it, it's not is it that it's missing. It's not that Jesus forgot to read it. He just stops. What, what you and I read, uh, what Steve read to us a little bit ago, Jesus stops. If you look back at Isaiah 61 verse 2, Jesus stops um, uh, at uh, just before, okay, it gets to the day of vengeance. <laughs> I find that really intriguing. He stops with, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he hands the, the scroll back to the attendant. Now, I find this really intriguing, and, and maybe I'm pressing too much in this, but what I want to notice here is that, first of all, this is not just a year, not just 365 days. It's a day of salvation that's coming, okay? A day of redemption that's coming. But I also want to recognize here that by him stopping before he talks about the day of vengeance of the Lord, it makes me wonder if what he's hinting at is what the gospel writer indicates right after John 3.16, that part that you and I all know, you know? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you remember what comes next? Verse 17. But God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it. But to redeem it. Maybe that's why he stopped short of the last phrase of verse 2. Well, I think it's really important here that you and I catch a little bit of this. Now, verse 3 
It's going to, there's some phrases I want us to compare here, and we need some Old Testament passages to help us. Who'll go to back to the left a little ways and go to Esther 4, verse 1? John, thank you. And uh, Jeremiah 6, 26. You're going to have to go to the right for that one a little bit. Sally, you mind if you get that one since it's your birthday? Okay. All right, now, what I'm going to indicate here, what, I'm gonna, what I think the Bible is indicating here, is that the Lord is getting ready to accomplish in Isaiah 61, 3, a, what I would call in uh, modern day parlance, a complete makeover. Not of himself, but of us. Not of himself, but of our world. Okay? Now, let's read... Um, I want to, to catch a couple of things here. Uh, John, read uh, some bad news has been delivered in the book of Esther, and here's how they respond to it. What did they do to express sadness? They put on ashes. Okay, let's look at another reference to it. Uh, Jeremiah 6, 26. Sally? Oh, my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes, worn with bitter wailing as for an only son. For suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So sackcloth here is equivalent to mourning, sadness, grief. Okay, now I want somebody who has... The NIV in front of you, because I just like the words that, that they picked out in the NIV. Um, if somebody, if you have the NIV in front of you, and if you've got one of the scriptures that's on the, on the table, it's probably NIV. Uh, somebody read verse 3 for us. What are we going to trade for our sackcloth? What are we going to trade for our ashes? Uh, somebody read verse 3. Instead of ashes, okay, there are three little parallel passages, three little sections, little um, couplets that are here, okay? He's going to trade your ashes for joy. Did you catch that? But actually, beauty for ashes. I, I got ahead of myself. He's going to trade your, your ashes for beauty. Now, that's a pretty good trade. If ashes means sadness, if ashes means sorrow, if ashes means even um, godly sorrow for my sin, he's going he's gonna to trade for you, trade you for beauty for that. Uh, he talks about a garland of beauty. What was the word that was in yours, Paul? It was a, a crown. Crown. He's going to place a beautiful crown on you instead of ashes. What a great thing. Secondly, then, he's going to give you joy instead of mourning. You ever go through a stretch of time in your life where you want to say to God, Lord, it's time to turn the page. It's time to give me some joy. I've mourned long enough. And you might argue with him over that. Lord, I've just been sad. 
And you might say to him, Lord, I've been a little morbid, but I can't help myself. I'm just so sad. And it may be over the loss of a, of a loved one, or it may be the, over the loss of a relationship. It may be over the loss of a job. It could be lots of things. But I'm in mourning over this, Lord. And the Lord, the promise is, the Lord is going to give you joy instead of mourning. It's kind of beautiful. Well, the third one. I'm going to give you a life of, uh, let me read it from the, from the New American Standard here. Uh, he says, got to get the right spot here. I'm going to give you a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. What does the NIV say? A garment of praise. In other words, I'm going to place praise around you. I'm going to clothe you in praise instead of this spirit of despair that you've been in. Their losses have been and are going to be great. He says, the day's coming when I'm going to change your clothes. You'll be clothed by a spirit, kind of this garment of praise instead of this spirit of despair. It's pretty wonderful. Three, these three wonderful makeovers. I'm going, to, I'm going to trade beauty for your ashes. I'm going to trade joy for your mourning. And I'm going to give you praise instead of despair. And he goes on to describe kind of this renewal program in verse 4. Then they'll rebuild the ancient ruins and they'll raise up the former devastations and they'll repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Now what I want you to know is that in context, this could be talking about what happens after the exile when they come back and they rebuild Jerusalem. But I don't think it is. I think there's a much more important reclamation project here. And I'm going to call it God's urban renewal project. But... but uh, put um, in the line there, this is much more. This is describing a lot more than an urban renewal program. Okay? It would seem this refers to um, post-exilic restoration of Jerusalem and the kingdom and, and um, the temple and all those things. But I don't think so. Now, go with me just back a few pages to 40. Isaiah 40. A former passage. And in verse 4, Isaiah is going to talk about God changing the topography of the land. Okay? Here's what he's going to say. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. What's he doing? Leveling. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain become a broad valley. Now, the idea there is, uh, the reference actually is uh, to uh, what often would happen if, if a uh, king was coming into kind of a remote part of his kingdom and, and he would often send uh, minions, he'd send um, heralds ahead of him to tell him, hey, the king's coming, it'll be about a month. You know what they did in the meantime? They made the rough places plain. <laughs> they, they got out with their road, road graders and said, you know, when the king comes in his royal carriage, we don't want him to hit a bump on the way into town. So they fixed all that. The topography of the land literally changed 
Why? Because the king is coming. See, I think that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about the restoration, necessarily at least, of Jerusalem post-exile. To him, um, he's using this to describe the coming of the king. He's using this in in chapter 40 to describe the herald that will come ahead. His name was John. You remember that? Came just a few months ahead of the king. And the idea here is that the coming of, the building of, the growth of the church is going to be this building program that's all important. Go with me to 1 Peter 2 verse 5. If you beat me there, read it. 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Almost to the end of your New Testament. Somebody got it? When the king comes prior to that time, he's going to be building up a house. Can I tell you something? We're all part of that house. Those of us in the church are part of that spiritual foundation that's being built. This building program is preparing for that time. Now, let me, let me jump ahead a little bit before we go into verse, uh, we're going to jump ahead to verse 8. So let me give you a little bit of thinking about, if you read the verses, if you want to glance at them or scan them, verse 5, 6, and 7. Isaiah continues his stirring account of the coming changes, the changes that are coming. Instead of serving strangers and foreigners as God's people are going to do during their exile, the reverse is going to happen. Their relationship toward the nations, verse 6, won't be of domination and payback, although they kind of want to do that. Rather, God's people are described as becoming priests of the Lord, ministers to these people. This exalted position isn't one of privilege, but it's one of responsibility to reach those around us, even in other people groups around us. And this is going to highlight the future restoration, this makeover of God's people. Okay, so somebody go, if you will, to verse 8 and read 8 down through 11. He's rebuilding, remaking, reclaiming, and getting you ready for his return. Now, this is all based on, I believe, his faithfulness. God is going to keep his promise. Now, would somebody go to Hebrews 8? I want us to read Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, which is going to be a quote of Jeremiah 31. And so instead of reading them both, we'll just read Hebrews 8 as it quotes it. Somebody get that? 
Who's got it? Oh, thank you, Louise. That'll be great. Now, um, this faithfulness of God is what's going to make this happen. And back in verse 8 in Isaiah 61, he's going to make a couple of promises. What are the two promises? He is faithful to keep his promise. That's what I want you to know. And he's going to make that promise, the two promises here, in verse 8 out of 61. What is it? A reward. I think I heard that out there somewhere. Going to promise a reward. What else? A covenant. Covenant's a, a promise in itself. A covenant. I'm going to, I'm going to give you, I'm going to, there'll be a, a, a new thing going on. I'm going to give you, give a new covenant. It will be an everlasting covenant, he will say in other places. Okay, now, in Hebrews 8, beginning with verse 8, down through verse 12, um, he doesn't quote the Hebrews writer. By the way, that's where we're going to be next week. We'll be in Hebrews 1. But he, the Hebrews writer does not quote Isaiah here in talking about this new covenant that's coming. He actually chooses to quote Jeremiah in a kind of a parallel portion from Jeremiah 31. And so literally what, what's getting, getting ready to be read to you by Louise comes right out of Jeremiah 31. Louise, would you read 8 through 12? Reward's coming based on his faithfulness to this promise. And he's saying a new day is coming, a new covenant is coming. By the way, you and I are living in that. Did you hear all the things that Louise read about that are coming? Including right at the end of it, a forgetfulness of your sin. He's going to forgive and forget your sin. He already has when you accepted Jesus, his, his son. There's this beautiful piece of that, all that's coming. Um, he, he says, nobody's going to come to you and say, hey, you need to really get to know the Lord because he says the Lord's going to be inside you. Uh, the word, you will know because the Holy Spirit helps you to know it. Those, those are promises that you and I have already received. It's a brand new one. Now, verse 9 makes it clear to me that, it, that as we go forward, for now, until the end of time when Jesus returns. It, it seems to me that, it's, that Isaiah is really going to try to make the point here that the church's reputation matters. Look at verse 9 back in Isaiah 61. Their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. The church's reputation Jesus is going to say it this way. Let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and pat you on the back. What did I get wrong? Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I knew it was something like that. 
Let your light so shine before men, Matthew 5, 16, that they will see your good works and will glorify your Father who is in heaven. The things that you do, buying hoodies for a bunch of kids and chairs for their school, the things that you do bring honor to him. His reputation, therefore the church's reputation matters. I read this this week. Check it out. We dare not forget that our reputation communicates something about God to an unbelieving world. Can I read that again? We dare not forget that our reputation communicates something about God to an unbelieving world. You ever think about your life that way? What does your life as a Christian say about the Lord Jesus? What does your life as a Christian say about the Heavenly Father? Well, it's clear here that our reputation matters. Now, verse 10, we've got another kind of identification project to do. In verse 10, in in Isaiah 61, he's going to say, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The idea here is the I is the same as the me in verse 1, okay? And in verse 8, I'm sorry, um... It's the idea here that, um, that the Lord Jesus is going to look back on all of this that he's done with a sense of satisfaction. He's going to look back on all that he's accomplished in and through you, the church, and he's going to look back on it with a sense of satisfaction. He's going to say, and, and he's going to look at it also with a sense of preparation. Now, I put some references there to uh, a bride and a groom. Um, I got in the mail just yesterday or the day before uh, an invitation to a wedding. You know, you get these things and you think, oh, that's really nice. And, it, you know, typically it means to me, okay, there's another Saturday. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> but what I want you to notice here, that the Lord Jesus, according to the prophecy of Isaiah here in 61, in about verse 10, the Lord Jesus is thinking about his wedding day with great anticipation. And he's thinking like most grooms think. What do most grooms think about? Lit ramping up. What does my buddy Alan Bama Rogers, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about the bride. Okay, those verses are going to tell you. Who is Jesus thinking about? You. He's thinking about you. And that day when the marriage supper of the Lamb ensues over there in Revelation 21 and some of those other places, 19. Okay? Now, he's going to be looking forward to the bride, to being with his bride forever. You can catch that reference, can't you? The last verse of this passage, and then we'll go. By the way, that clock should be shot. It is according to According to AT&T, Louise, it's 9.03. I've got a couple of minutes, okay? All right. Somebody shoot that thing. I know some of you guys here are armed. (laughs) Don't do that, by the way. They're already looking for excuses to kick me out, so okay. Uh, 
The Lord is going to be himself, the ultimate source of church growth. Do I, am I getting a little laugh? Uh, better, better calm down. <laughs> look, at, look back at chapter 55. I, I just love this passage, verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. These days, uh, I look at Facebook, social media several times a day, not to see what Donald Trump is doing and not certainly to see what Hillary Clinton's doing, but... I'm always curious about what's going on in Berrien County, Michigan. Just how I am, okay? And I learned just a few days ago that in Berrien County, Michigan, the apples are falling off the tree. Because I saw a little tow-headed boy picking one up, eating one in a picture. The apples are falling off the tree and they're so sweet that the bees swarm around them because they're that sweet. There is fruit being born in that place. What the Bible is saying here is that the word of God will always bear fruit. The question is, is it going to bear the kind of fruit using me or will God have to do his work around me? Now, I want you to look again at verse 11 that we just kind of ended on. And it talks about the growth of the church and the church being prepared for this great wedding supper. And I want you to ask yourself, is this happening in our church? Is this happening in our world? Is this happening in my life? Is the harvest being reaped? If not, why not? Jesus says it this way, the fields are ripe for harvest. It's at this point that the church ought to take a close and painful look in the mirror. Are we dedicated to fulfilling the great commission or has it become the great omission, as one person said? God has done his part in giving his son to establish an everlasting covenant that we read about in verse 8. But are we failing on our end like Israel did of old. I can't answer that for Crossings Community Church. I can't answer that for the United States of America. I can't ask that, answer that for, in general for Christianity as a whole today. But I can answer it for me. Are the apples falling off my tree? Am I being fruitful? And I think we've got to ask that question. Remember what Jesus says. The fields are white, ripe, ready for harvest. Am I doing my part to be a part of that? We're going to look at a little more of this as we get into um, Hebrews 1 next week, okay? I'll see you then. Thanks.